Hello, welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting to a woman plagued and embarrassed by her name, a humiliation enhanced by a nomadic childhood that made it impossible to build lasting relationships. Shenandoah Shafalo developed a tough skin at an early age. Along the way, she learned to deal with disappointment, push through discomfort, overcome adversity, and accurately gauge people, qualities that have helped her to succeed. After spending nearly 20 years as a law office administrator, Shenandoah became unsettled by the ever-evolving door of the criminal justice system and set out to find a way to change it. She attained Coach U and became a certified life coach. Working through that program, Shenandoah began to understand her childhood in a way she never had before. She set out on a mission to tell her story and educate the general public about the grim realities of life that she had always tried to hide. She believes that some of the grassroots solutions she offers in garbage bag suitcase could change the lives of children and the landscape of the country. Shenandoah is a graduate of Michigan State University, holding a Bachelor of Arts with a major in Interdisciplinary Studies in Social Science. A core essentials graduate from Coach U, a certified Law of Attraction Advanced Practitioner, a member of the National Speakers Association, and volunteers with several organizations locally, nationally, and internationally. Shenandoah is also the author of an ebook entitled Seeing Your Vision and Defining Your Goals, and is currently working on their next book, Hiking for Stillness, Finding Healing One Step at a Time. And on today's podcast, we'll be chatting about from foster care to graduating at Michigan State University and beyond. A very warm welcome to the podcast. I'm going to do my very best to pronounce this as correctly without offending the guest. Shenandoah. Shefalo. How did I do that that time? How was I do that, Shen? Was I okay? David, you did great. Thanks Wonderful. for having me on today. No, my 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 pleasure. So let's get this started. Where are you right now on planet Earth? Uh, right now on planet Earth, I am located in Traverse City, Michigan, United States of America, where we have still about a foot and a half of snow on the ground. Oh, very pleasant. So is it quite chilly? <laughs> uh, this is our first sunny day. So we are just reaching above freezing degrees today. It's our first day of sunshine. And I think we are at the end of winter. Right. And can you, can you get out and about still with the snow? I know in the States, these are very well organized when it comes to removal of snow and keeping the transport system going. But you can still get out and about, can you? Yeah, we're, uh, we're pretty used to the snow where I live. And so I actually live on a lake that is still frozen fairly solid that has maybe um, a little over a, two meters of ice on it. So we're still ice fishing and, and skiing on a frozen lake. Very posh. You live on a lake. Yes, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate. Yes, I live on a very small lake. Yeah. So, so how does that work? I mean, can you... During the winter season, I mean, how comfortable do you feel getting on that ice? Although it's quite thick, but can you go well, across I'll it? I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, you could, you could walk completely across it. In fact, about two weekends ago, uh, one of the neighbors was driving their vehicle and doing donuts out on the lake. So you can take a vehicle on it. The <laughs> ice is so thick. And has it been any I would not. I would not take a vehicle on it, but others are comfortable. Right. Uh, never. We've never had an accident. And, and do the fishes become frozen when you take them out? Are they frozen fishes? No, they are not frozen fishes. It's amazing how a fish can still live in a lake that's that cold, right? But that's, that's the, the beauty of Mother Nature, I guess. And I bet you the air is very fresh, is it? It is. It is. 
so jealous. So, so jealous. Okay, uh, enough, of, enough of my boring. Let's move on to your excitement life. So I give an introduction about your background. Can you let our listeners know a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so actually, um, I'm a, a Southern California girl. So, right, everyone knows the United States really only has two cities, Los Angeles and New York. Yep. And so <laughs> I was actually born a little south of Los Angeles in San Diego, near the, the actually the United States-Mexican border. And my life was pretty nomadic growing up. Uh, we sometimes forget how big the United States is. But before the age of 13, I moved actually 50 times, attended over 35 schools before I was 13 years old. And, and really, my childhood was nomadic, exciting, but filled with a lot of adversity and trauma. My mom suffered from numerous mental health conditions. She also had drug and alcohol uh, problems. Never met my biological father until after I had graduated from high school. When I was 13, I entered the, the United States child welfare system, foster care, right around the world. We call this different things in different places, and, and we deal with the issue in lots of different ways. And then at the age of 18, I aged out of that system, essentially meaning that um, I'm 18, I was considered adult and then left into the world to figure it out on my own. The problem for me was, is I turned 18 halfway through my last year of high school. And so I hadn't quite yet graduated from high school when that happened. And you're not given anything. You're not given housing. You're not given money. There's no resources, you know, no health care in the United States. Right. So, so you don't have any of those basic things. And for me, I was really just trying to figure out how to graduate high school. I wasn't trying uh, to go to college. I wasn't trying to like set the world on fire and, and become a, a millionaire even, right? I was just trying to get a high school diploma. And mainly because I didn't know any adults who had graduated high school. So I thought if I could get a high school diploma, I'd have a leg up on a lot of people I knew. Um, but I had a lot of significant challenges, a lot of abuse in my childhood that I hadn't dealt with. Um, I was 18, like most 18 year olds, I thought I had the world figured out, but you know, even developmentally didn't quite have the world figured out, uh, had no access to money or resources or any of those things. And sort of by the grace of a teacher who really took interest in me and said, what are you going to do after high school, I was able to get a plan. Um, but before I could do that, I was going to become homeless <laughs> before graduation. So I convinced my last foster parents to allow me to stay with them under the assumption that I would pay them what they had been receiving from the government for my care. So in the United States, foster parents are paid a stipend per se uh, on a monthly basis, lots of factors into how much that money is in the child. And so they agreed that if I continued to pay them, I could stay so I could at least graduate from high school, lived in a really rural location. And so I didn't have the ability to, to get an apartment or to take public transport to get to school. So this was really my only option. Um, so I was working a part-time minimum wage job, like most high school kids, right? Just yeah. doesn't, pays not well. Um, and all of the money was going to just sort of keep myself housed so I could graduate from high school. And this teacher said to me, I'd really think you should go to college. And I thought she was, I bonkers. I thought she had lost her <laughs> mind because the idea of college just 
really had never occurred to me. It had occurred to me when I was much younger, but sort of the reality of my situation set in, right? So so like many of us, when we're kids, we have these big dreams of being a professional athlete or footballer or singer, you know, but then then reality sort of sinks in and and most of us have to give up on that sort of where I quote, get real with what we want to do. And so I had given up on college, probably in elementary school, but that was anything possible for me. And she was kind of adamant about it. My thought was, hey, I'd continue working at this hardware store, which is the job I was doing at the time to to keep myself (laughs) housed. Um, And the people really liked me. So maybe I could like become the manager of this hardware store. That was like my big goal. Right. And she thought that was a really bad idea. So she sent me to my guidance counselor's office and he said, why are you here? And I said, oh, well, Mrs. Clark thought it'd be a good idea if I applied to college. And to be honest, he looked at me and said, you know, Shen, kids like you don't go to college. And I thought, I know. (laughs) You're right. Right. Because that's. He wasn't the only adult in my life sort of steering me that way. All the, the judges in my foster care case, the attorneys, all of these social workers were pretty much saying the same thing. I'm just going to turn into my mother. And I think the world had pretty much given up on me at that point. But he said, people like you just learn to serve people like me. And I, at 18, looked him in the eye and nodded my head and thought, Exactly. That's exactly what people like me do. And so I marched myself back to Mrs. Clark's classroom, not thinking too much about that conversation with him. And Mrs. Clark said, so where did you guys decide to apply? And so I told her what he said. People like me don't go to college. People like me learn to serve people like him. And Mrs. Clark um, is a tiny woman. I should tell you, a, a really petite, small woman. And, and I'm actually quite tall for a girl. So so we're kind of a, a an odd pair, the two of us. And she was standing in her room. She's a chemistry teacher. And I would have thought her head was going to explode when I said that to her. I mean, I had never seen her so angry. And, and to be honest, probably for two decades after that conversation, I thought she was mad at me and disappointed in me. Right. You know, it, it took me into my late thirties to realize how dare that guy tell a kid, uh, and be what I've now referred to as the dream killer, right? The yeah. person who says, get real. You can't do that. Get real. You can't have that. Get real. You're not good enough to be in our space. Um, but at the time it made perfect sense to me, right? Because Here I was, this traumatized kid from poverty who literally had nothing. Um, I didn't fit the mold in any way of a college student. I was a decent uh, student. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't a terrible student. I was just mediocre at best. So I thought he was right. And she disagreed. So Mrs. Clark said, we don't need him we'll do this ourselves. And she found college applications for me to fill out. The issue quickly became that I couldn't afford the application fee for university, right? It didn't matter. Small, big, close, far. Everyone wanted money just for the ability to, right? Like the privilege to apply to that establishment (laughs) you must pay for, which is an odd system around the world. I'm not sure why we do it that way. Like, Like you have to pay for the privilege to even apply here. Um, 
it, it is an odd piece when, when we talk about all of these things, but that was the case. I had zero dollars to my name. I, I, I mean, you could have been asking for, for pennies. I didn't have it. And so Mrs. Clark very, very graciously said, if you go to my alma mater, I'll write the check for the application. Now, I didn't know where she had gone to university. I frankly didn't care. It could have been on Mars. You know, when someone, when you're in that situation and someone offers, it's basically handing you a winning lottery ticket worth, yeah. worth billions. So, and was it much, Shen? Was, yes. it, was it? Was the application fee much? It, it was quite a bit. It, it was at the time about 125 US dollars. So right. it, it's it's not nothing, but it's it, it's it's more than nothing, right? Yes. So this is a, a public school teacher in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, in modern dollars, you know, it's probably 300 bucks, right? So it's like, a, it's a chunk, you feel it for sure. And so she wrote it. And I eventually got accepted into Michigan State University. I, I had the opportunity several years later to do a speaking engagement in front of college administrators where I was sharing the story that when my acceptance letter came in the mail, because that was the old way, right? I, I'm a little older than email. So <laughs> we actually got a physical letter delivered to us. And, Your and old said school. that I got in. Yeah. yeah. I, I dialed a phone actually and called the administrator's <laughs> office and said, I think you've made a mistake. Um, you said I got it and I'm not sure that I did. And I got the opportunity to share that story with college administrators a couple decades later. And they said, we get calls from students about five times a year saying, I don't, I, I think you made a mistake. I couldn't have possibly gotten in. And that for me was that, that, first moment of like, my life can be different and other people can't define it for me. That acceptance letter became a, a defining piece. Um, and, and I ended up not having, it ended up not being my happily ever after going to college, but for a kid who, who came from immense poverty and from a severe uh, physical and, and sexual abuse in my childhood, uh, getting to college had seemed impossible. And it sort of became the first mountain I was able to overcome and climb. It took me eight years to get my undergrad degree, but it, it was the first step. And it was the first time someone shared sort of their privilege and their power with me to open a door that I wouldn't have been able to unlock myself. I mean, it's a fast, I mean, geez, we've been recording here, I mean, minutes, but already fascinating it, first of all mrs clark well done to you right. i mean is, right. is are you still in touch with mrs clark i'm not unfortunately mrs clark passed away when ah. i was in college but um uh which is a pain for like it, it, it's a real it, it's a real hurt in my life because i would love to share with her where i am today in present day life but also i think I get to sort of just remember her in that place we were together. Yeah. Like, cause you know, for anyone who's had someone close to them pass away, that person never ages for you. Right. That person is always just that person in that moment you were with them. Yes. And, and so as I get closer to her age in real time, now, right. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of an interesting thing, but I, but it is interesting because I do find my 
myself in times talking to her in my mind still. Like, can you believe we're here? Because it does feel like a we to me. It's 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 amazing. I'm getting little tingles, so to speak, listening to your story. <laughs> I mean, but did Mrs. Clark have any family of her own? Do you know, or did she have any? Yeah, kids? she did. She did. She did have a, a couple of daughters. Um, I've never been able to sort of track them down or find them. Probably, you know, because they've married and changed their surnames and, and those things. But, but yeah, she did. You know, she was a teacher, and for most of us, lots of us have those fond memories of someone in education that that really helped and propelled us um and she just did something she took a chance on a kid she saw something in i think a bit she was probably angry at the person who told me it couldn't be done and she wanted to prove something wanted to prove a point a bit too but you know but she took a chance on me because because very easily it could have still not worked out for me I'm not even sure if Mrs. Clark knew my whole story and, and knew what I was really going through. I mm-hmm. know she knew I was struggling and I wasn't like a lot of the kids in my school, but I don't even know if she knew the depths of it. I think she just did what she thought was right. Yeah, he seems like a good person to me. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, and the other thing I was going to say is, I mean, look, look at your photograph here. Uh, the listeners won't be able to see your photograph. You're, you're climbing Kilimanjaro. But everything yeah. that you've been through, um, Jesus, I mean, some days I get out of bed kind of like, oh, don't I get out of bed today? And I was a little bit tired. And and But everything that you've been through, it's, you're such a strong lady or woman. It, it, I mean, where do you where do you get all this energy or fire or determination from? I mean... Well, let's be honest. It's not, I have my days where I don't want to get out of bed either. (laughs) Like that's just the nature I think of us being human. Yeah. But, but, um, but you had so much, you You had so, so much kind of um, problems you had, you kept going. It's true. There, someone once told me like the sun, the sun rises, right? Like it doesn't matter what happens. The, the sun will rise tomorrow. And, and that's so true to me for so many reasons. Listen, I ended up getting into Michigan State. In my first 90 days, I attempted suicide three times. There's been some dark, dark days in my life. And so I think it's easy to look at, at someone's today's success sure. and be like, wow, that's, that's impressive. What we sometimes miss is, is like the, the sort of the saying of the Titanic and the iceberg is sometimes there's a lot underneath the water. Oh, yes. And, and that's the thing. Like, there are days where, where I'm not climbing mountains quite literally, but there are days where I've had them in the last two weeks where I think, what am I doing? Is it, does this work matter? Am, am I, do I have an impact? Is this, does anyone care if I stop talking about childhood trauma? If I stop talking about why we have to overcome, if I'm not doing work in, in school saying, listen, this is, if we don't change it, we got kids who don't know love and stability this impacts our entire world. If we don't talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, if we don't talk about these things and we don't change the way we do the work, will it matter really? Or will the world, will the sun just continue to rise? And what I finally come to appreciate is I used to think I was trying to move the needle of the world and the change by exorbitant standards, right? I was, I was shooting 
for the stars, so to speak. And now I'm just trying to land on the moon. Yeah. Sort of a corny saying, but it's like, I wanted a full tank of gas and now I'm just settling to go the next couple of miles. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's really this idea that like, I I might not be able to save everyone. I might not be able to save the world. Hell, I might not even be able to save myself, but I'm going to leave an imprint to make somebody's hour week day a little better. Um, I think it's great. This little thing. And no, I, I think, think that's great. what Mrs. Clark was doing, right? It's like she didn't know if that paying that fee would would change my life. It did. Um, but I'm just trying to plant a seed. Maybe it blooms, maybe it doesn't, but but let's just try. And my goal is to plant as many seeds as I possibly can in the field. And they're not all gonna, they're not gonna all bear fruit, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to get as many planted in my lifetime as I can. You're, you're doing it, Shannon, I can assure you. I mean, I would love, me personally, I would love if you met Mrs. Clark's kids and told them your story mm-hmm. of how she helped, because I think that would be, that would just light up their day um, and their life. But the, the other thing you mentioned there with, with doing these podcasts, I realized myself is that when you meet somebody or you talk to somebody, you you you, you touch on there with the Titanic and the iceberg and similar things yeah. that I have is a swan. And the swan looks uh, very graceful over the water, but under the le- <laughs> under the water, the legs are kicking. And yeah, you know, and it's kind of like you can see in the top it's so beautiful and stunning, but under underneath it's it's a different <laughs> ball game all, all together. But it, it's it's what you're doing is is um uh, is amazing. So so it, it, especially with all the strength you're you're showing, uh, I, I don't think many people would be able to to be where you are right now. And uh, after being true, what what you've been, um, it's it's yeah, it's, it's fascinating and, and and well done you. I I want to ask, um, I want to get these two questions out of the way as quickly as possible mm-hmm. because I know you've 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 mentioned this before in uh, your bio. So why were you embarrassed by your name? Yeah, so Shenandoah was a name um, I had to, to grow into, right? So yeah. there's some of these names that exist around the world in, in many different cultures. I've, I've Lots of different people have said, oh, we have, we have something similar, right? But, but it's sort of like, um, you know, have you ever seen like a small little boy with what's really like an adult name? You know, like you have to yes. sometimes grow into your name, right? Like, yes. I don't know. I'm just like off the top of my head. I'm sort of like, like Wilfred or something. It's like, what, <laughs> yeah. what little boy is a Wilfred? But like as a grown man, it's fitting, but as like a little boy, it doesn't quite fit. Right. So it's yeah. like this name you have to grow into. And Shenandoah was that, but, but it's also the context of timing. So I was born in the seventies and I grew up in a time where people did not have unique names. Like there were very just traditional biblical names mostly, right? But but for women and girls, especially, it was like you were Jennifer, you were Marie, you were Tan. Like there were just these, you were Elizabeth. People, there was like Sarah. There were like 12 names you could choose from. And then there was me, the name Shenandoah. And what really happened is people were annoyed by my name. So for a long time, I would joke that my name was blank stare because whenever <laughs> I was in school and I changed school so frequently, so people never knew the name. Right. And it would be the first time they would see the name. 
it would be like they would just look at the paper and blankly stare. And I knew to raise my hand when they were taking attendance and say, that's me. Or when the nurse would come to call me into the doctor's office, right? She would just look at her piece of paper blankly because she wouldn't know how to pronounce it. Right. Now, as I've gotten older, I've sort of come into owning it. But when I was a kid, like, how do you abbreviate Shenandoah into a nickname? So nobody knew what to call me. I didn't have a middle name. Like there were all like, it was like a lot of trauma associated with my name. As I grew older, I could kind of grow into it and then begin to own it. And then we sort of cult the culture of the world. People started naming their kids more unique names. And now there's lots of kids with unique names. So it becomes less problematic. But in a time when I was growing up, <laughs> it would have just been much easier to be Jennifer is all I'm saying. Right. So, I mean, are you still having hangups about the name now? Or are you just... I, I have less. I think I've really just accepted it is what it is. Um, somewhere along the lines, one of my girlfriends just started calling me Shen. So it got shortened down from Shenandoah just to Shen. And so there's like a circle in my world of people who just refer to me as Shen very casually. And then usually professionally, there most people are like, they demand to call me Shenandoah because they're like, we love the name. We think it's amazing. <laughs> and so I also have a circle of people who demand to use my full name Shenandoah. But I think I've just grown into it. Um, and from a business perspective, like I'm literally the only Shenandoah Shuffalo on the planet. So it's really easy to find me like, right. It has these other benefits yeah. that, that I didn't have. Like when you type it into Google, I'll, I'll come right up. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. uh, sometimes a negative has a positive. So it's a, it's a, right? it's a good well, one. Yeah. Well, for you being David Smith, like worldwide, how many David Smiths oh, do you the, anytime, you might have? If, if I check into a hotel, it's like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And you're like, no, no, this is my real name. This is, you know, they think you're kind of pretending and you're going yeah. in there with somebody else. You're like, no, no, this is this is my real name. So yeah, it's, it's, there's lots of us. <laughs> I can assure you. The, the person behind the uh, the reception desk kind of looks at you kind of suspicious, like, you know. Um, but no, I, I've, I've kind of gotten used to that by now. Tell me this, Shen. You mentioned there 50 times that, was it in and out of foster care, was it? Or in and out of different homes? So what's the, what's, the, yeah. what's the difference there? Yeah, so so from the age of zero to 13, I was still with my biological mother and we moved about 50 times. Very nomadic, attending school sometimes for less than a week at a time. And then I went into foster care at the age of 15. And then I have about another 12 to 15 moves subsequent to that in and out of the foster care system. So once I was removed from my mom's, uh, my mom living with my mother full time. Um, I was in foster care full time. So I didn't have the back and forth in the system, out of the system, back in the system, out of the system. I was a, a, a one and done that way, but lots of moves both before foster care and after foster care. So I've lived in group homes. I've lived in foster homes, uh, been homeless way too many times to count at this point in my life. And so yeah, I've really on the home front experienced it all to living on a lake in northern Michigan. Right. Pretty incredible. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, the journey is fascinating, but it's it's not that's not even fast. That's a stupid word. I've actually said it's it's inspirational. What I mean, I'm trying to get into your mind. Right. So think mm -hmm. think I, I have three kids and they're young kids and I'm trying yeah. to get in, in to their mind of how they might feel that if the world was turned upside down for them, that 
they had to move from place to place to place into foster care, have this unstable childhood. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you explain how you're? How yeah, you... I try. I try to talk about it, like, because how do you explain something that others haven't experienced? Right, yes. it's a really hard thing to capture. Yeah. The only thing I could maybe try to relate to that's like in our headlines is like what's happening in Ukraine, right? Like, yeah. like when you have a mass refugee crisis war, right? Like, I don't know how you want to refer to it, but this mass population moving, like the upheaval of that, where you're literally taking nothing with you. Yes. Um, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You, you don't know if you're going to survive today. You don't know if there's food or water. That was very much my life every day for 18 years. So with my mom, like, we didn't know. Like, sometimes my mom would be in really high spirits and she'd have her mental health under control. And, and we'd do good for a month or so, right? Like, we'd get into mm-hmm. a, a system and a routine. But then my mom would disappear for three or four days and. I would be home alone, like no one cooking food, not knowing where I could get food, not knowing where I could get help, um, not knowing what was going to happen. And then my mom would, would pop up and, and she'd be suffering and we'd move. And now we'd be in a new community with different people. And so when I hear the stories of like people moving from, from different camps, you know, refugees being moved from different camps to this camp, trying to get to this place to get help or services, I very much think about my childhood where you never have true community. Um, you're not sure who's safe, you know, who's friendly and whose foe becomes very cloudy right. because they're just not your people. Now, the one thing I had going for me, I didn't have a language barrier, right? So that's a huge piece. Like I was always with people who spoke my language. So that's, you know, just talk about privilege for a second. Um, But I was a young kid. I didn't have money. I didn't have access to things or car or transportation. And what I learned at at an early age, you know, primarily because I was taught was like, I couldn't really trust adults. Right. Because they always failed me. Even when somebody would say they would help, oftentimes I would move. And so I wouldn't get that help. But to a young kid, that just was like one more person who can't do anything, right? It's one more person who lets you down. It's one more person who says they're going to do something, but then doesn't follow through on it. And so, you know, there's times in my life where I would have starved to death had it not been for school lunches. Um you know, I was a skinny, scrawny, dirty kid, literally living in cars, streets, hotels, random people, you know, couch surfing with random people from very young ages. And then that becomes normal for you. You don't know that there is a different way to live and be because that's all you know. So for, I see the young kids on the news who are going through this Ukrainian crisis, for them, all they know is that war. Yes. And so then the question is, is when the abnormal becomes your normal, how do you go back to normal? Right. And I, I yeah. sort of use the word normal loosely, but, but how do you do that? So when I was removed from that situation and put into foster care, and I share this story quite often, it was, it actually 
was a traumatizing effect on me. Right. So like my first foster mom was like, Hey, can you wash your hands and come to dinner? She was very nice and polite. But for me, that was like asking me to jump out of an airplane. I had never experienced it. And then that became traumatizing that that particular event, in fact, sent me into a rage. Like I wasn't always a nice, stable kid, right? Like I've done a lot of work on myself. Yes. And at at 13, I just went, I went ballistic in the house to the point that the police had to be called and I had to be restrained because, and, and no one thought what's, you know, what's going on here. They just thought, I just asked her to come to dinner and then she went ballistic, but I had never at the age of 13 sat at a dinner table. So it felt completely unsafe. And so what, what I, what I think we're seeing in society, especially in this post COVID sort of thing is like, there are people who that that has become normal. And so asking them to, to leave what the rest of us would consider to be abnormal um, begins to feel dangerous and unsafe. What, Shen, is your, say, experience overall of foster care homes? I mean, we have this picture, you see sometimes mm-hmm. movies and it looks all sweet and innocent, nice and friendly. In your own experience, what was it like? Um, it was my same experience with strangers, if okay. that makes sense. So, so nothing changed for me, except I didn't know who the people around me were. Um, it's, it's really the best way. And listen, I, I convinced myself to go into foster care because of the movie Annie. Right. Because right. in Annie, right here, she is, she's in this dirty orphanage, right? It's yep. yucky. But in the end, she gets daddy Warbucks and becomes a millionaire and has this cute dog and lives happily ever after. And I thought yep. that's what my foster care experience was going to be. And frankly, it's hard for me even today. We, we sort of talked about this, like the Hollywood version, right? Yes. It's, it's like, do I know kids who survive foster care who had a Hollywood ending? I do but they're very few and far between. Right. But yet those are all the stories we get presented with, right? The rest of us have a different version of what happened in foster care. And it's probably not screen worthy because it's more like a horror story, right? So, so there is still lots of continued physical and sexual abuse within foster care. Um, I was in a group home where that, that was run by the government where we were denied access to feminine hygiene products, where we were denied access to books. Like it's not prison. It's, it's supposed to be like a group home for kids. Like we're not prisoners. We didn't commit crimes. We didn't do any of those things yet. We weren't given access to, to basic health and hygiene products. Like. Um, was this for, was this for boys and girls or just for girls yeah. specifically? Yeah, I mean, we were, I was in a, like, boys and girls were in our building, but, you know, we were in dorms with just girls um, run by the, by, by the state government. And, you know, we were denied access from, from the people and workers there of all kinds of personal hygiene products. Um, I tell this story quite often that I don't think I even knew what deodorant was until after I had graduated from high school. Wow. Okay. Like it hadn't occurred to me. I was, when I aged out of foster care, 
I was wearing the same underwear that I had entered foster care in. So I came in, in foster care at the age of 13. Well, a few months before turning 13, I was 12, technically. But I aged out at 18. I mean, you have young kids. Can you imagine that that a 12-year-old girl and an 18-year-old girl would wear the same size underwear? Like, they're just different people. Like, yes. But, but, but those, like, those things make you feel subhuman. Of course, you don't, you don't brush your teeth, you don't have access to what most of us just don't even we just get up and do this like morning routine, right? You got up this morning, you brushed your teeth, you did whatever your morning routine is, you don't even think about the the 25 products you use to like get up. And, and so you begin to say, I'm not worthy. What, what gets messaged to you is that people don't have to tell you you're less than. They treat you as if you're less than. And you're quite apt on picking up on the message that you're not as good or as important as these other people. And so you begin to tell yourself, well, I'm not good as important. I remember laying in bed crying, saying, if my own mother can't love me, then it's no wonder the rest of these people think that I'm defective. <laughs> it's 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 i mean my picture as well or stereotype of foster homes was loving and caring that's that you know that that was Mm -hmm. my picture in my head and And they exist those do exist i don't want to because there's lots of people doing this work who will hear this and be like i'm a foster parent i'm not like that no there are really good homes but there's also really bad homes and many of us suffer from living in some really bad places where really bad things happen to us do you think, Shen, is it a, is it a money grab? I mean, if the government's, uh, I don't know how it generally works in the states, but yeah. if they're supporting this and funding this, um, do they not like do a full background check of these families? Do they not do recurrent checks every week or every two weeks? Yeah. I mean, is it just a money grab? Is it like the families take somebody in and they go, well, "I'm going to make two hundred dollars a week or four hundred dollars a month um, for looking after this this child or kid," and and there's no emotion yeah. involved. For sure. Listen, for some people, money is is the issue, but it it also becomes a breeding ground for something we don't want to talk about. But but if if, um, you know, we talk about child pedophilia or we talk about sex trafficking, where do you find those victims? Yeah, well, you know, so you you talk about sort of the creepy guy around the school playground or something. Right. Like as a parent, we're, we're sort of like trained to think about those things. Right. Yeah. But. But if, I, if I'm that person and I'm looking for, for people to take advantage of, regardless of what it is, right? If you're trying to con somebody or do something to somebody that's illegal or, or deceptive, you got to go where your victims are. So that's why, like, we got to be worried about who are our teachers and who works in, you know, why, what's going on here, right? Because access to kids gives you permission. Well, where do you have more access to kids than if they live in your own home? Yeah. And you have a steady supply of them because frankly, most people aren't signing up to take in kids who've experienced trauma. I mean, you know how hard it is to be a parent, like a reasonably satisfactory parent, right? Like let's not even, you don't have to be the world's greatest parent, but just like an average parent, how hard it is. So now to take a kid who's experienced some significant trauma, who, who has some issues, who needs some extra, right? It's yes. even harder. So, so the list of people signing up for that, let's be honest, that takes a special person just to say, hey, I'm interested in helping in that way. And so it becomes a breeding ground of 
there's a need. We're overwhelmed with kids who need this help. We don't have enough people. What, how much work, like we got to get these kids somewhere. And so I think it becomes a little bit of a, a supply and demand issue from the state. I, and like, we got to put these kids somewhere. And this is a house that's at least meeting their basic housing needs. How, but then how, other things happen. Has there been any improvements since you've been with the work that Gosh, you're doing I now say so. and you're bringing awareness to it, but do you think there has been? I think, I think we're in socially, we're talking about it more than ever. Right. I mean, there was a time in my career where we couldn't even talk about sexual abuse. Like that was just this big no, no, right. You couldn't even say the words you yes. had to sort of like give each other the look. And, and so we've come a long way in the fact that we can even talk about it being an issue. I think we've come a long way scientifically in understanding what early adversity does to people and how that affects behavior. So for a long time, we've been focused, especially with children, on bad behavior. And we were just like, you can't do this behavior. You can't do that behavior. And what we never asked is, why does the behavior exist in the first place? Yeah. And we're starting to understand that for a kid like me, for example, when you take her out of what clearly is a dysfunctional home, but you put her in a home that, hey, maybe the foster parents are the best foster parents on the on planet Earth, but, she, but it's an experience she's never had. That experience in and of itself is traumatizing. And when she has bad behavior, we say, see, she's out of control. We can't control her. She needs to go to a locked facility. Instead of saying, wait a second, I mean, if you pushed me out of a plane or you made me do something really uncomfortable, I might not be on my best behavior either. And maybe it's it's our approach to this and giving people time to get accustomed to what this new thing is. Yeah, it's frightening, Shan, I have to say. It's, it's um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to know. I, mean, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to think of my kids um, going through what you've been mm. through. It's, it's, what about then friends i mean have you met are we, have you kept in contact with any friends uh through your your journey through school no. foster care so i haven't but what's been really fun is just this just happened to me in the right before covid hit um i i in my book that i wrote i talked about this one particular friend i had in in grade six and just we were just really close and it was really a classroom that for me, the classroom I had been in for the longest period of time in my life. And this is right before I go into foster care. But we had been together for about five or six months, which was the first time I had lived anywhere for that long of a time. And, and this girl and I became quite close, but then I went into foster care and I sort of never heard from her again. As I was working on the book and writing the stories about some of our high, you know, kid stuff that we used to do as kids, right? Yeah. I uh, started Facebooking and right, like you're trying to find these people. And I just couldn't find her. I mean, I, it, it was the only reason I joined Facebook. Is <laughs> oh, <laughs> was like on this quest to, to find this woman. And I just couldn't find her, couldn't find her, couldn't find her. And about four months before COVID, I get this, this Facebook message and I look at it and it just says, um, are you Shenandoah? And, and it has my birth name. And I thought, oh my God, there she is. Wow. And so 
right? Because I have this unique name to sort of wrap back to my name. She was able to find me. She had a very common name like you. So <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> like a needle in a haystack trying to find the David Smith you went to high school with, right? Yes. Like it's not an easy task. <laughs> so um, I, so we got to reconnect and have lunch. And so we've been in contact. So like, it's just amazing. And, and that lunch was so amazing for me because she said she read my book before we got together. And she just said, I never knew, you know, we had spent all that time in childhood together. And she's just like, it never occurred to me that this was all going on. She's like, I didn't know what happened to you because you just disappeared. Like we, we weren't texting. You weren't going to find me on Instagram. Like when kids move, they just moved. And there was no way to know where they went. And, and that happened to me so many times. So I didn't keep in contact with a lot of people from my childhood, but, but that has sort of been in my adult life. The, the one experience of writing the book that probably for me made it all worth it was being able to reconnect with her. But wasn't it great, isn't it? That, you know, uh, obviously you left an impression that they, you took the time to actually get back in touch with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, 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 that, that's, yeah. a, that's a nice thing. Yeah, because I think there was a part of me, you know, I think you're hitting on something, David. I think there was a part of me when I was searching for her, like, would this person even know who you are? Right? Yes. Because she had left an impression on me, but that doesn't mean that I've left an impression on her. She could have just gone on with her life and never thought about it again. I mean, many of us have people that were in our lives for short periods of time. We probably couldn't even think of what their name is. You know what yes. I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting piece that, that we each impacted each other. Um, and it's, it's been interesting for me to see where our lives converge and where they had, how our lives have taken different paths, where we've ended up. Like, it's just a really interesting piece. Right. Like she's still in the same town where we went to school. She lives still there. Um, I live very far from there. So it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's just a really interesting piece. And, and it's something that does make me wonder, like, do those other teachers that I was in contact or other kids in those classrooms that I was in contact, do they ever think about me? Do they ever wonder what might have happened? You know, I, I wrote this um, about this story in my book. I was, we were living in Las Vegas at the time. There's the third city everyone knows in the United States. Um, Whatever stays there, happens there, happens there, stays there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, at the time I was with my stepfather and he, we were actually, um, he was a landscaper and he was doing bids in this very wealthy community. And I remember, you know, we didn't wear seatbelts when I was a kid in a vehicle. So I remember being perched on the edge of this little pickup truck and I was staring at what appeared to be mansions to me, right? These big like castle like houses of of wealth that just uh, seemed like who could possibly live in all that space? I remember like how many people live in that one house? It was so big. But my, my stepfather actually pushed me out of a, the moving vehicle. And when he pushed me out of this vehicle, I rolled into this woman's lawn. And, and I was pretty bruised up. And there was a woman gardening in this really big mansion house. And she said nothing to me. I remember her just staring at me. And several minutes later, my stepfather, who was very angry, came and, and, and picked me up in a very violent way. 
by my leg and, and literally drug me out of this woman's yard back, back to the car. And to this day, David, I think she never called the police. What did she think? She watched this, what must have felt like a very surreal event. It felt surreal to me. And I was the one getting pushed out of the vehicle, but, but someone watched that happen and did nothing. Yeah. Does she regret that decision? Does she think about what might've happened to that girl that rolled in her yard? Or did she like go to lunch with her girlfriends, have a martini and call it a day and never think about it again? Like I, like I still to this day think about that. Have you, have you lost faith in humanity? I mean, you mentioned I haven't lost I haven't lost faith, but but little surprises me. If that right. makes sense. So do because you, I've seen because I've seen the goodness of Mrs. Clark. Yeah. And I have seen I have seen what people will do to each other as well. Like I, I've been the benefactor of both. I don't right. know if benefactor is the right word, but I've been the receiver of both. I think I have seen the best in humanity and the worst of humanity. And so I'm not surprised by it. Like, listen, I'm in the United States, right? We, we lived through four years of, of Donald Trump. Like, I'm not surprised by much. Like, I'm most like, yup, that's how people will treat each other. That's what people will say. And I see people doing real goodness from that. So do you find yourself, you, you lower expectations all the time so you don't get disappointed? Is that always on your mind? I think, I, I think I've become more practical. Right. I think that's why when I said, you know, I used to shoot for the stars and now I'm just like, listen, <laughs> yeah. we moved it a little bit. Did I, um, I relish the emails I get from people who say, hey, I read your book. I heard you on a podcast and it just really touched me. I relish those in a way that I don't think I did before because right. it's like, that's the person who was affected. That's the person who, who got positively pushed in a little bit of a better direction or, or more positive direction. And I try to sit in that longer and I try to compartmentalize the pain that I still see people doing because what I think I've come to realize as an adult is that that hurt people hurt people. And, and I want to help them stop hurting. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm still, I'm getting, I'm getting the picture. Um, it still amazes me how you've gotten through all of this. Um, and I say, I'm looking at your photograph here at Kilimanjaro, mm. that how a young kid, and I'm trying to relate it again to my own kids, how mm-hmm. you had that mental strength to keep on going, keep pushing through, never giving up. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I can moan anymore, to be honest with you. I think I'd like to moan about something, but I don't think I can. (laughs) Yeah, well, but you're, so you're looking at me there in Kilimanjaro, right? So in Swahili, they have this saying that that I learned on that trip, uh, pole pole, which means slowly, slowly. Yeah. Now. I, ju- I just used this when I was in a business meeting, David, is I, they are talking about doing this big project. And I said, you got to slow down. You're going too fast. And they're like, no, no, we're, this is just the right pace. And I said, no. So I made everyone get up and I said, 
just start walking around the room slowly. And so everyone's walking at a pretty slow pace. And I said, uh-huh. now slower and slower. Because what they mean on Kilimanjaro is literally you are just moving your foot an inch at a time. Right. And then the other one, an inch, literally an inch, not a full step, an inch. You're just shuffling it an inch. And when you're, when you're doing the hike on Kili, the first day they tell you, pulley, pulley, you think they're nuts. Cause no, you're just no. like, <laughs> yeah. you're just like, who can walk this slow for six days? This is impossible. Yeah. By day two, anything faster than that feels like you're at full, at a full run. Yes. And, and they say this, that the best athletes in the world are often the ones who can't climb Kilimanjaro or Everest because they're trying to go too fast. Yes. Because they're they're conditioned so well. And, and I always joke and say, that's why I made it to the top. I'm fat and out of shape. It's just <laughs> like, it was made for me, right? It's like, all you have to do is just be slow and consistent. And what I've found in my life is that when I try to move too quickly or too fast, is when the pain comes. But when I move slowly and intentionally, and I really think about, um, is this the best next step? I really get where I'm going, you know, a little bit of the tortoise in the hair, much, much, yeah, well, you, in, you're, in much better shape. You're achieving it. I mean, it makes no difference how long Slow it takes. and steady, you. right? Yeah. So, so I think when we think about our well being, most of us are thinking like we're going to arrive. There's a day when we will just never have a bad day. And that's untrue because without the bad days, there is no good day, right? Without rain, there is no sun. It's like yeah. this whole thing. So, so the truth is, is it's like, it's just slowly, slowly. Is today a little bit better than yesterday? No, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask you there, you went to Michigan State. So mm-hmm. what was it like in college? I mean, did you... Did college open your eyes more? Did you still have certain reservations? Yeah, no, I, I struggled. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I mentioned this, right? So my first yeah. 90 days, I attempted suicide three times. And then I went to see, um, you know, the one thing about being at a major university is, is there's some really good intellectuals, right? And yeah. people who are, are really great at their craft. Yes. And so I had a job. Uh, working for this professor because you know I was trying to work my like work to pay for part of my tuition because no one was paying my tuition so I had this little on-campus job and it was like making photocopies for a professor and and I think he noticed like I was in a dark not good place and he said you should go talk to my friend you know he's a psychologist and I went because one of the things that happens to kids in care is that we're often diagnosed with all kinds of things, right? ADD, oppositional defiance, like attachment disorders. Like we are like a walking encyclopedia of diagnoses, um, partially because the more diagnoses you have, the more money you're worth, right? So, cause you're more complicated to deal with. So the more, yes. the more pills we put you on, the more diagnoses you have, you're worth more money. So then people just, you become improperly diagnosed with things. So I had been given a list of diagnoses that I had, which would be depressing for most people because it was a very long uh, list of things. And I went to see this guy and he asked me what was going on. And I sort of gave him a brief history of how I had arrived to MSU's campus. And he just looked at me and said, none of the, you don't have any of these things. He said, what you have is you're 18 with no support and resources. And that was, that was a pivotal point in my life of 
like one of those pivotal moments. It didn't fix everything, right? But it was like, wait, I don't have, I've been defined by all these labels for a majority of my life. Yes. And now all of a sudden you have this man who's really good at what he does telling you, no, you don't have those things. You just like you're an 18 year old kid who's got, who's got some issues because you're an 18 year old kid and you don't have any support and resources. And that might be stressful and you might feel depressed, but, but you don't have these diagnoses. You're not manic depressive. You're not bipolar. You, you, you know, you don't have chronic depression. Um, you don't have ADD. You don't have these things. And it was like, Oh, and so then it was like, okay, I need a, I need to get a job because I got to feed myself. Right. So then like from that conversation on, it was like, so I can do this. I, I somehow went from being the victim to being the driver in my own life. Um, if, if we think about like drama triangles and reenactment triangles, I had been I had just claimed this victim role, which is easy to do, right? Like David, like you've heard part of my story. You're like, yeah, you were, you were a victim. Yes. But if you just claim that role, then it's like, but so there's nothing I can do because people just do things to me. And when he said that to me, it allowed me to become the driver in my life and say, wait, I am 18. I can choose. Like, I don't have to do that thing. I can do this thing instead. Now, it took me eight years to get my undergrad degree. So because I had to go to work to pay to get my degree, right? So I had to learn to balance all of that out. And let's be frank, I was 18, 19, 20, and like all 18, 19 and 20 year olds, it's very easy to think about, hey, my friends are cool and we're going to a party and now I can't get up and go to work the next morning. Like I was still a kid. Yeah, I was. Um, I still spent money on things I shouldn't spend money on because I was a kid, even though I was a homeless kid. Like it doesn't change just because, right? Like I still want the cool latest tennis shoes, just like all my friends are getting. Like those things don't change just because you're in these circumstances. Yeah. And so, so college wasn't the answer, but college gave me the ability. Now, as this person, when I look back on my college experience, I think, gosh, I wish I would have taken advantage of different things in my college experience than I did. You know, I wish I would have gone on that study abroad. I wish I would have done that internship. I wish I would have found a mentor, right? But I didn't know that then. I did the best I could with what I had. Um, But, you know, I have a 20-year-old daughter now who lives in the UK and is studying, and I think, wow. I went from there to a kid who's now studying at university in London. That's like mind blowing to me. Having an experience, well, having an experience that I couldn't have even dreamed of having as that 18 year old kid. It just wouldn't have, I couldn't have even, London didn't even exist on my radar. You know what I mean? It just wasn't even a part of the world to me. I didn't even know it was there. And so I, I can look back with these eyes and say, I don't think I had the traditional college experience. I would definitely change it if I could go back with the information I had now, but it was a changing force in my life for the better, even though it was hard. I'm, I'm sure your daughter is very proud of you. Um, uh, you know, I'm proud of her. That's the difference. Oh yeah, I'm, like I'm, I, oh, like I stand, right because you have kids, and it's like yeah. I just stand back and go, "What? 
did I create that? That must be somebody else's creation. Who could have created this, this like living, breathing thing who now like completely <laughs> takes care of herself? Well, except for financially, she, right? It's just like, <laughs> wow, I did that thing. It's, it's a pretty amazing process. Oh, it's, 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 it's brilliant. Um, what, what Sometimes they're a pain. <laughs> oh, well, we're all the pain. I'm a biggest pain. Um, I, as I, I, as I probably, as you mentioned earlier on, like you know, the, your your friend reached out to you and got in touch with you after all those years, and you obviously, you know, you you touched her in a nice, in a nice way, and I I, I kind of felt that way myself. But unfortunately, most people just block me to do Shen. They don't want to talk to me ever again. <laughs> oh, I, I find that hard to believe. You run a podcast. We all want to talk to you. <laughs> once, once they meet me or meet me for five minutes, I'm like, bye-bye, Mr. Spit. All the best. Bye-bye. Um, so the what drives you on now? I mean, you mentioned you have a 20-year-old daughter. She's in college yeah. in the UK. But, and you've obviously you've Kilimanjaro. Uh, you know, what, what, what more would you like to do? What, what keeps you getting out of bed in the morning? Yeah, so so I'll tell you, it's kids. Right. And, and um, you know, I'm from a, the Generation X society over here. So I know I hear a lot of people complain about millennials and Gen Z. I am so invigorated by the next generation of, of what I call kids. Now I know some of them are like 30, but they're still kids to me. <laughs> And um, um, I'm in awe of them. I I actually think the next couple of generations are some amazing human beings. And so what motivates me is how are we going to make it better for them and the ones that come after them? And so everything I try to do, I try to think through how is this going to benefit kids? Now, what that means for me is that I spend a lot of time working with damaged adults. Right. Because I'm trying to lessen the damage that flows to kids. And, and as I said, hurt people, hurt people, right? So we're healed and harmed in the context of our relationships. And so how do we build true connections? How do we make it more authentic? How do we help people be their more authentic selves? How do we how do we live in that true wellness where the thing that matters above all else is that people are happy and healthy? Like, how do we make that the cause before money? How do we make that the cause before status, before your job title? Um, you know, I do this exercise with folks sometimes where I say you have to introduce yourself. We've all done this, right? The icebreaker in a meeting, like, tell us something about yourself, David. Yes. And, and I put a caveat. You can't tell us your name, your marital status. You oh, can't tell us your education <laughs> or your job title. Introduce me to really who you are, right? Which means you have to get to like the essence of who you are. I don't want to know your job title. I don't want to know your marital status. I don't want to know any of that. Tell me who you are. Yes. That core of who you are. And I think for me, that's sort of the, the, the eyes that I'm looking for is how can we help people live from that place of well-being? Oh, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, I'm being nosy here, Shen, while you're talking there. Yeah, uh, I'm not, sure. I'm not, I'm not being rude. Be nosy. Uh, I'm I'm um, looking at your your website, uh, garbagebagsuitcase.com. Where did that name come from? 
Yeah. So garbage bag suitcase came from that in the States, at least. I, I don't know how common this is elsewhere. It's that uh, sort of when you're in foster care or when you move frequently and you got to take what you can in a very short period of time, most people just grab a garbage bag, throw their belongings in it and take it with them. Right. And, and oftentimes kids are dropped off on the doorsteps of a foster parent's home with, with a garbage bag filled with some of their belongings and they've sort of been haphazardly thrown in there like trash. Right. So things are bent and broken and because <laughs> uh, it's just gone in this, this waste bin. And, and so when I was thinking about a title for the book, it was really the only title that stood out to me that, that this book could be. It's my whole life has been about putting it in a garbage bag and throwing it out and starting over. The, your, your, your website as well has uh, lots of information. You have a blog and I can see some <laughs> nice pictures, um, which are, uh, you Kilimanjaro. You've done, <laughs> um, you've done so much. I mean, there's so much information there about foster care. Yeah, I mean, we're working on, yeah. I'm working on a new children's book series. We're going to do a picture book series and a, um, and a chapter book series that'll be age appropriate that are done from Love Bunny's point of view, which Love Bunny's on the cover of my book, Garbage Bag Suitcase, and really is the symbol of what got me through my childhood. Uh, Love Bunny is the only thing from my childhood that remains today. And so Love Bunny is getting uh, their own spinoff series um, into a children's book. And I'm super excited about that, where we're going to be able to talk to kids about really tough issues. You know, we're going to be able to talk about war and divorce and homelessness and, and incarceration and, and drug use with kids. Um, in a way to talk about their trauma and, and healing from the things that have happened to them. So I'm super excited about some of those things that are happening as well. I'm probably most excited that maybe knock on wood COVID's over and we get to travel again. <laughs> oh yes. That'd be a big bonus. Um, you know, I, on my books, it's two notebooks with places that I want to do some hiking at. So I have every country available to United States citizens uh, listed with a at least five hikes in each country that like I want to do before I die. And I do all of those hikes for, for kids in foster care because, and I said this when I hit the top of Kilimanjaro, um, can you believe that a kid in care can end up at the top of, of Africa and the top of the world? Um, because it's possible, you know, that, that counselor might've thought people like me don't get to go to college. And we just proved that people like him don't get to tell us what we can do. Is that gentleman still around? Is he? The one I don't who... know. I, I am like, I, I have a little nausea when I think about him. I've been, never Googled his name. Right. Oh, so I'm sure he'd, he'd, uh, he'd be very, very sick and very pale and nauseous himself, he will. If, uh, if he finds out, if anyone how, ever found out, right? If he, if he finds out how well you've done, maybe maybe you should send him a little email. Send him a copy, signed copy of your book. That's what I would do. I Where we talk to him about it, I know. Honestly, it's yeah. on the list, right? It's like it's one of those things. Like, do you want to open Pandora's box? Yeah. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Do it. Do it. I'm telling you to do it. Okay. Go ahead and do it. Um, All right, David. I'll let you know if I do. You do. No, and, and, and Mrs. Clark's daughters as well, our family. That I'd, I'd love to hear that story. That would that be really yeah. nice. 
Um, yeah. Where else then can listeners, so where can they buy the book? Where can they get in touch with you? I know the garbagebagsuitcase.com yeah. website I have here in front of me. Are you on the Facebooks, the Instagrams, of all these course. wonderful websites? Yep, they can find me there. They can find the book on Amazon, of course. They can buy the book directly. They can go to shuffleoconsulting.com as well. Um, yes, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. I'm there. I'm always there. The only Shenandoah Shuffalo. It's so easy to find me. And you have all of these wonderful services as well. You do keynote speaking. You do training workshops. Uh, you have organization consulting, personal well-being coaching, and book club or organization. So generally, you have so much going on there that anybody can get in touch and uh, arrange yeah. to, um, We're launching to use your services. Free- yeah, we're launching some free intentional conversations. Anyone around the globe is welcome to join. There's there's no agenda. There's no sales pitch. It's just people who want to come. And typically, I just ask like a really thought-provoking question, and we see where the conversation goes. It's really just about sort of meeting people, creating space and community. Um, it's it's random. We never know who's going to show. Sometimes nobody shows. We just we take whoever comes. Sometimes we have 50 people. You never know. So those are available to everybody. And then uh, starting in late April, there'll be the trauma-informed masterclass. People who really want to dive into uh, the trauma aspect and how we can redo things as organizations are welcome to join that. That's going to run about 10 sessions. We're going to do one a week for about 10 weeks and see what happens. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I'll put all the links in the podcast uh, once it's been published all it's left for me to say is thanks so much to uh i'm gonna do this again shenandoah absolutely how's that did i do it you got it you did it you did it see we can overcome our fears i appreciate your time today david and i hope that we get to do a follow-up conversation in the near future oh we will oh without a doubt uh you're you're an inspirational person and uh keep doing what you're doing so thanks so much to uh shen thank you thank you again